This is the third broadcast in our discussion of marriage. But I want to just take a moment out from that discussion to talk about single persons because I believe that in this discussion we don't want to leave them out. We've talked about the importance of companionship as the fundamental element in marriage. God said when he thought of marriage and spoke about it in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. And then in the passages in which he identifies marriage as not a human institution, but a covenantal arrangement that he himself has set up, he says in Malachi 2 and Proverbs 2 that marriage involves companionship. Now, what about the single person? What about the person who never marries? Shall we say that this person uh, is in a better situation or in some worse situation? Or how shall we look at the person who is single? We might say singled out by God. Well, the first thing we have to remember is Genesis 2.18, which says that it is not good for man to be alone. The norm is marriage. Everyone must recognize that God has set forth for most people the ideal and the norm of marriage. It is not good for most persons to be alone. That means that marriage is for most persons. But there are exceptions, and there are exceptional situations, and those we want to talk about today. The scriptures, for example, tell us that it is better not to marry under certain circumstances. In 1 Corinthians 7.26, for example, Paul, who was at that time single, though he had probably been married earlier, said, I think then that this, and he's speaking about staying unmarried, this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, do Paul's words contradict the words of Genesis? In Genesis 2.18, we're told it is not good for the man to be alone. And here Paul says it is good for a man to remain alone. That would seem to be a flat contradiction if there ever were one. But you see, that's because you didn't listen carefully to the whole statement in 1 Corinthians 7.26. Paul does not say that it is good for a man to remain single. He said it is good in view of the present distress for a man to remain single. And later on he goes on to say the time has been shortened, verse 29, so that from now on both those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they didn't weep and those who rejoice as though they didn't rejoice and those who buy as though they didn't possess those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it and so on. Paul's talking about a persecution situation. He's talking about a circumstance in which that early church in the Mediterranean world in the, the Roman Empire was about to receive a tremendous bloodbath of persecution from Nero. And as a prophet of God, he saw this coming upon the church and even wrote about it. And he was here advising Christians that under those conditions, in view of that present distress, that it would be better 
to remain single. Sometimes people fail to recognize that fact and they extol celibacy as a more desirable state. Whereas the scriptures say that it is not good to be alone and there is the norm for most of us, but the exception is given in 1 Corinthians 7 that in certain situations it would be better not to be alone. Think of all the husbands who would be slaughtered, whose wives would die in poverty and in in uh, starvation and distress and whose children would be thrown uh, out on the uh, streets in order to eke out some kind of an existence. That was the kind of thing that Paul had in mind when he wrote these words. And if we should ever find ourselves in that kind of situation in this country, those words would become very pertinent to us once again. But Paul's not talking about the norm, he's talking about the exception in times of persecution. And even then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's not wrong if you get married, if you find that you can't contain. Now, there's another interesting passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus spoke about celibacy or the single life. And he had some very important words to say about this matter in verse 12, uh, in which he talked about this whole question. Uh, the disciples, after Jesus had just finished discussing the question of not uh, allowing divorce except for the cause of uh, fornication, disciples said in verse 10, if the, the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, God has set a special call upon certain people to whom he has given a gift of celibacy and to those persons alone. But not everybody can accept that. Indeed, the majority cannot and should not. Then he went on to explain. He said there are some eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. They got that way by natural causes. There are eunuchs, secondly, who were made eunuchs by men. They uh, were brought into that condition where they uh, could uh, uh, no longer operate as full uh, human beings in, in sexual propagation uh, because of uh, some unnatural means. And then he said, thirdly, not only are there people who were born that way naturally, and those who were, were mutilated and made eunuchs unnaturally, but there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. There are some who have decided to live the single life because they were given the gift by God to do this, and they do so in order to throw themselves more fully into the work of Christ. Now, there are some people who want to be married who should never be married because they have the gift of celibacy. There are some people who want to be married who need to be married, and they're not married not because they have the gift of the single life, but because they've been so miserable and the way they have lived, nobody wants them, and they better get straightened up. But there are many people to whom God gives this gift, whom he singles out for a special work in his kingdom, and they find the companionship and they find the fellowship in their Lord and in others with whom they work that will in some way satisfy that loneliness in another way, when God gives them the gift and the ability to continue to work for him. And those to whom God has given this gift should search to see if they have it and should not compl complain, but should then throw themselves fully into the work of the kingdom of God uh, as they recognize that they have it. Paul mentions this also in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says that the gift 
uh, is given one way of marriage to one and the gift of surupacy is given to the other. But all do not have, as he says, the same gift. You might look at verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 7 for more on that subject. And so the question today is, what, where do you belong if you're unmarried? Do you belong with a partner eventually? Fine, pursue it, prepare yourself for it, get ready for it, uh, pray that God will send you the right person. But if you are single, and maybe now the years are going by, don't become bitter, don't become uh, angry because no one has sought out uh, you uh, for a marriage partner. It may very well be that God has given to you the gift of the single life and has singled you out for special service in his kingdom. Throw yourself wholeheartedly into that service for the sake of Jesus Christ and you will find that fulfillment in him. This we ask, Lord, that you will bless those in this way for your sake. Amen. Thank you. In our series on marriage, which we're now in the middle of, we have been talking about the purpose of marriage, which is ordained from God, and we said that this marriage is a covenantal arrangement that God himself has set up in which two persons come together to meet the need for loneliness of which God spoke when he said it is not good for man to be alone. And in Malachi 2 and in Proverbs 2, Malachi 2.14, Proverbs 2.17, the fundamental element of that marriage relationship is singled out as companionship. Now what does that companionship consist of? What is it like? What are we talking about when we say those things? That's the question that we're concerned about today. And I'd like to turn you back again to the original account of marriage as God spoke about it in the garden, what marriage was intended to be. In Genesis 2, 18, 24, and 25, we get words on this subject that are most informative and very critical for our thinking. The first thing is, is that when God says in 2.18 that it is not good for the man to be alone, he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, at another point, we'll come back to the question of being a helper. Right now, I want to talk about that suitability of the helper. Because the word suitable says it from one side, but not fully enough. The word literally means approximating him, or one that corresponds to him. Uh, let's try to think of it uh, this way. We, uh, we were to, if we were to take a grapefruit and take a knife and cut it irregularly in half, and then two or three more grapefruits and cut those in half. And we were to try to take various halves of grapefruits and match them up to each other, not using the half that came from the grapefruit originally to meet its other half. We would find that at no point would these two approximate each other adequately enough to form a whole. But if we had the two halves that originally came from the grapefruit itself, the two that came apart originally, which were one, 
and put those together in the way in which they originally sat next to one another after the cut took place, we'd find that at every point, the one half of the grapefruit would match up to and would approximate the other half. A marriage is a match. It's a match between two things that approximate each other, two persons who approximate each other at every point, who are the equivalent of each other's need at every point. It is the putting together of two who make a perfect fit. Now, not just sexually, but every way, a man and a woman are designed by God to fit one another so as to bring about a whole a fuller something than you could have singly. In other words, you have a husband and a wife who come together and they form something bigger and richer and fuller and more real and more uh, of a, a uh, fullness together than the, either one of them could have singly. That's what he's talking about here. We sometimes hear people talk about my wife or my husband as the better half. That's not the idea. Neither is better. But we could very much talk about one another as the other half. Because a marriage partner is only half of what he can be and will be and is to be as his marriage becomes richer and deeper and he comes into a deeper intimacy of relationship on all levels with his wife or with her husband. The marriage state then is a state of companionship on every level that brings both parties to a fullness of themselves and goes beyond themselves to begin to get the viewpoint of another person into their own lives. I don't look through the at the world simply through male eyes now after marriage. I look through the world at the world through female eyes too. I have my wife's opinion on things and I know generally what a woman's opinion then can be about such matters because I've heard enough of her opinion and, and I've learned enough of that opinion and to, to understand something about these matters. And it has made my whole life richer and fuller and deeper to see the feminine viewpoint on things. She's brought lace curtains into my life. And she, in turn, hopefully has seen a bit of the male viewpoint on things. If it wasn't for my wife, I'd go into every situation as if uh, all you needed were boots and mud. But now the lace curtains bring in a whole new dimension of reality and of life uh, to me. And hopefully I've smeared a little mud with my boots on her lace curtains too so that she can see the male's viewpoint on things. But apart from each other, we don't have as full of a perspective on life. Each one fills out the other in a richer and fuller way. Then there's more to it. You notice down in verse 24 of this second chapter of Genesis that we read, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. We'll come back to that too at another point. And the two shall become one flesh. Now that's not speaking primarily or directly of the sexual relationship. It includes that. But the one flesh uh, statement, which is repeated again by Paul in Ephesians 5, is used to speak of two becoming one person. The word flesh there means just about what we mean when we say one person. You know, just a couple chapters later in this book of Genesis, we read in the destruction of the world by the flood, 
that God was going to bring a flood, a flood upon all flesh. He meant every person, or as we put it in our expression, every body. And we're not thinking of the bodies especially there. We're thinking of every person, everybody. And when they said all flesh, they meant everybody. Every, you know, just as we say everybody, we don't think especially of the bodies. We think of the person. And so what he's saying here, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, when he tells the husband that he should love his wife as he loves himself, that everything he does for himself, Paul says, he's, uh, for his wife, Paul says, he's doing for himself because the two are one. They are one person. You can't make your wife happy without that making you happy. You can't make your wife miserable without you being miserable. I can assure you of that. And the point is, as Paul says, that they are so close, so much a part of each other, that what you do for one affects the other. They have become one person, one flesh. And then finally, in verse 25, notice, it says the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed because sin had not entered the picture. It was not that they should be ashamed of nakedness, but they were open. Not even clothing came before them and God or between them and each other. They were open and frank and completely intimate with each other, able to talk about anything, do anything, able to relate to one another on all levels. This is what marriage is all about, a real deep intimacy of fellowship and companionship with nothing in between. And a Christian marriage can restore that kind of ideal that God has set forth here in Genesis again. As two people really in Christ come together and open up their hearts and their souls and their needs and their joys and all the rest to one another in marriage. Don't you want somebody to whom you can pour out your heart? It can be your marriage companion. I know you say there are problems. We'll talk about those in time. But the point is, this is what marriage is all about, what it's for and what it can be for you in Christ. Lord, help Christian marriages to be that, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.